If you would like to turn to Genesis chapter 41. Now the crochet's moved, I can move. Okay, we've got quite a, quite a long reading uh, from uh, Genesis 41, verses 1 to 16, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 37. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offences today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. And then if you jump down to verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. 
Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In 1985, a lady called Catherine Wentworth had become obsessed by her half-sister's husband. He did not return her passion. What she then did was she went to her half-sister's lawyer with a letter a letter that was fictitious that she had written and forged herself, and it was a letter that led to the breakup of this marriage. She hoped that she could then be with this husband. But once the divorce was final, as Catherine pursued this man again, she found that she was disappointed a second time because he had hooked up with somebody else. This was too much for her, and she decided that if she couldn't have him, no one could. And so she ran him down in a hit and run in her car and killed him. 18 months later, Catherine's half-sister Pam awoke to noises in her bathroom and on tentatively going into the bathroom, she found her husband alive and well and in the shower. Bobby Ewing had come back to life. <laughs> The dream sequence in the United States soap Dallas had, Patrick Duff, had, to be, had to happen because Patrick Duffy had decided to leave the programme. But then it had untold consequences, but not for the storyline of Dallas, because Patrick Duffy having come back to the series didn't affect Dallas particularly, but its spin-off, Not Landing. Because Knott's Landing depended on the story of Bobby Ewing dying. And him coming back meant that Knott's Landing had to become science fiction and come up with an alternative universe. Dreams don't always work out as we imagine. I have three points, since it's a sermon, and a good sermon has three points. They are... The frustration of dreams, the force of dreams, and the fulfilment of dreams. So firstly, the frustration of dreams. Sigmund Freud, who wrote his great work, The Interpretation of Dreams, said that dreams are the same and equate to wish fulfilment. What you dream is what you wish for. Is it true? that what you dream is what you wish for? If it were, 
I wish to be on a roller coaster with Tommy Cooper, a pumpkin on my head, singing she'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. So we probably think perhaps it's not true. Because dreams in Western culture tend to be random, obscure, surreal, and mostly unhelpful. But for, say, the Muslim culture, it appears that Muslims uh, have only dreams as their only way to hear God speak in the present. So dreams are very important then, because it's a way of hearing from God. So if you want to pray for the Muslim world, pray for the Muslims to have dreams of Christ. Now in the ancient world, there were two types of dreams. Passing dreams the random kind of things that we would just reject, and what's called living dreams. What Joseph has are living dreams. What the two in prison had are living dreams, and what Pharaoh has are living dreams. It's a nice structure to the story of Joseph. He has two dreams, two dreams in prison, and two dreams of Pharaoh. I asked Mike the other week whether the dreams of Joseph were from God, because we take it for granted that they were. It doesn't say that. Uh, it's an assumption. But the reason why we do it is because the dream becomes lived out. So it looks like it's a living dream. It could be that God has used the dream to turn it into reality. I say that because the end of the story will tell you the purpose of what Joseph is about, which I'll come to. But when Joseph shared his dreams with his brothers, he showed three character traits. He was arrogant, he put himself above them. He was immature and thoughtless, with no care for his brothers or his father. And thirdly, he was foolish, no consideration of the consequences. So why is Joseph's story so great? Well, because he goes through this incredible transformation of character. The eventual outcome, uh, we're told in chapter 50, is so that many should be kept alive as they are today. That's the purpose of Joseph's story. God it's, he says that you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, so that many may be kept alive as they are today. But now, in order for that to happen, Joseph has to end up in Egypt to bring that about. See, character is primary. Not purpose, not calling, not gifting, but character is primary. We should be becoming more Christ-like, transformed into his image. We should express outwardly more love, because without love, what we have is nothing. And ultimately, our lives should be giving more glory to God. So promises and words and dreams that you live with, that we live with as a church, don't come in a void. They're in order to produce something in us on our way to fulfilment. God is looking for us to change, to be transformed. Now Lucy was just saying to me before the meeting, weren't you? You don't like change. 
unless there's a purpose. And we think we don't like change, but actually God wants to produce something excellent in us. And in order to do that, we sometimes have to go through trials to see our character transformed. I remember years, many years ago now, being in a discussion meeting before a small group meeting where we were talking about AIDS. Now, AIDS was a new thing then. Nobody really understood what it was about. And in this conversation, I said, whoever gets AIDS deserves it. That's rather arrogant and presumptuous. And somebody challenged me with, what about babies that are born with AIDS then? I didn't really know what to do with that, because what I had done is said something without knowledge, and was caught in this hard place of, what do I do now? I didn't do anything initially. And the prayer meeting we then had started, and it was very heavy, very tense, because, because when we assert ourselves, it just brings disunity. Part of the way through the meeting, I just thought, I need to apologise. So I did. I apologised publicly, because that's where I'd said it. The meeting changed totally, and the person to which I'd had the conflict with we're still very good and close friends now. Why? Because humility brings us together. Where we can admit our wrongs and our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, we draw closer together, not further apart. So actually God's interested in our characters being transformed to bring unity, to bring that sense of love for one another. So if you have promises, dreams or words over your life, Here's some questions you might want to consider. What does God want to reform in you? No good worrying about everybody else. Ask the question and look in a mirror. What does God want to reform in you? Have you asked him what he wants to reform in you? Have you given God the permission to change you as he wants to change you? One of the more dangerous prayers. Will you allow God to change you if he wants to? And finally with this, have you asked your leaders what they think of your words, dreams, promises and your character? Why? Because God gave them to you, to me, to look after our spiritual welfare. I dare you. After all, If God has given them to us, we have to trust them to look after us, to be for our good. The problem with dreams is they have no timing in them. No timing. So you can't tell when a thing's going to happen. They're unclear in the details. They never work out as you imagine. Joseph saw through a glass darkly, and so do we. How many prophetic words have you had have worked out exactly as you imagined? I can assure you that the ones I've had never worked out as I thought they would. Secondly, there's the force of dreams. In the ancient writing that we still have, there is only one piece of writing left, Still, uh, that still exists, 
about dreams, and it's by a Greek called Artemidorus. And he says what the most auspicious kind of dream is. Now, when I tell you what the most auspicious dream is, I don't want you to go away and force this dream to happen, but you might want it. The most auspicious kind of dream you can have is that you are eating human flesh. Yep, (laughs) who's excited about that? The point of it being that some things are so dramatic, they stay with you, it lives with you. You have to work out what its purpose is, but it's dramatic, it's powerful. It's a dream that holds up against the odds, it's long-term, it's unforgettable, it's impactive. Challenges to our lives should be overcome by the dreams, the words, the promises that we have, not the other way around. So when Ruth was going back to work and looking for a job, as we prayed, we felt God wanted her to be in a bigger environment. We didn't really know what that meant, other than a bigger environment. And she'd applied for a job with a small builder in Whitstable, who was just really wanting to expand his business. And he made an offer, and we felt we should say no to it because it wasn't this bigger environment. And so we kept pursuing something else, and Ruth had applied for the university by then. But this builder came back and made another offer of more money. There's the temptation. What do you do at that point? You have to go back to the dream, the promise, the word of God, and say, what did God say? Let's follow that. And we rejected it a second time. Now, Ruth is executive assistant to the Vice-Chancellor, oversees the PAs. The Vice-Chancellor is the President of Universities UK, a political role. It's word and faith equals fulfilment. You see, we must hold on to God's word and believe what God has said and then trust that its fulfilment will come in due time. But there is always changing whilst waiting... And there is challenge when enduring. Words, promises and dreams do not expect the trip to be all plain sailing. It won't be. Anybody who tells you otherwise is not telling you this truth. They always are challenging to you. All those that feel called to leadership face a challenge that makes them want to give it up. Joseph had his dreams believed in his dreams. He stood, you'll remember, morally straight when a challenge came to him. And what happened? Did it go well for him after that? No. He went to prison. Because doing the right thing does not automatically lead to the best place or the best outcome. If we think that it will, we're deluding ourselves. Sometimes doing the right thing takes us into a worse place to start with. In prison, and you'll remember that whilst he's in prison, he meets the person who speaks to Pharaoh that releases him from prison and into a new place. So he has to stay in prison. He has to be there. So in prison, he interprets the dreams. He tells the truth about the dreams, even though he knows that one of them is very negative. He maintains his honest character. He trusted God with his gift. He says 
in chapter 40, I think it is, uh, do not all interpretations belong to God. If you want to understand your dream, God will reveal it. He asked for favour and he didn't get it. He had to stay two more years in prison. Can you imagine this? You're in prison. How boring is it? You're in prison. It's a pit. You know it's a pit because by the time he comes out, he needs a good bath. He needs a shave because he's got a very long beard. And he'll be very dirty. This is not a positive place. And even though he's done great things for one man, the the man's forgotten him. He's got another two years to endure. He asked for favour and didn't get it. But as far as we can see, he doesn't despair. We're not told anything about he despaired, or he gave up, or he got frustrated, or he got angry. We haven't got any of that. What we've got is a man who endured trusting God. Dreams, words and promises rarely work out as you're, as they, as you're imagining. So a sober interpretation is what's needed. How many people here have got words, dreams or promises over their life? You hand up? Oh, a few. Okay, good few. You see, a sober interpretation is important. The wife of Marcus Aurelius, Faustina, she once had this dream of twin serpents. Twin serpents where one was fiercer than the other. As far as she was concerned, it was a totally positive interpretation that she would have sons. Sure enough, she did indeed have two sons, Antoninus and Commodus. They were born on the same day as the, the birthday of the worst of all Roman emperors, Caligula. Faustina saw this as positive, that she'd had her twin serpents. The Romans in general saw it as a very ill omen that they were born on the same day as Caligula. They felt it was a omen of dread. So who's right? Faustina believes it's positive. The people say it's dread. Both can't be right. Antoninus died relatively young. Commodus became emperor. 2,000 years later, and the film Gladiator comes out, and Commodus is generally revealed to you for what he is. A very bad emperor. Very poor indeed. You can work it out from there. A sober interpretation of the words and pictures that we have, plus submission to God, plus wise counsel, will equal the best possible hope. A sober interpretation. Submission to God and wise counsel will lead to the best possible hope. So thirdly, the fulfilment of dreams. Joseph is in prison. And as I've said, it's the best place for him. If you want to see how God works, you will understand that for him to end up where he does, he will have to end up in prison. All things work together for good 
and for those that are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. We love to quote Romans 8. When you're in prison, and you're in prison for two more years, because someone's forgotten you, are you going to remember Romans 8 then? Can you imagine being Joseph? (coughs) You're given two dreams of being elevated above your people. You're thrown in a pit and sold into slavery by your brothers. That's not very encouraging. You then work for an important man whose wife accuses you of being inappropriate with her and you reject her approaches by running naked through the high street. That doesn't look very good. You're sent to prison and who knows how long you'll be sent to prison for because there's no time span on it. You aid two prisoners and you can think perhaps now I will get favour but you're forgotten for another two years. And then one day, and this is the point, one day, and it appears out of the blue, randomly, they opened the door to the prison and call Joseph's name. You don't know when it's going to fulfil. You don't know when the door will open. What you have to be doing is waiting with faith. Now we will find out, once once Joseph comes out, has he learnt anything? Well, he's cleaned up and taken to Pharaoh, first of all. Has he learnt anything? Yes. Pharaoh relates his two dreams. And what Joseph said is, it is not in me. Now at that point, what he's saying is, It's not about me. Actually, it's about what God can do. Before, he trusted God had the interpretation, but then he would work it out. But here, he's saying, it's not in me. This is God. His humility has gained him God's grace, as it tells us in James. He can see his true position. God it is who sees all, knows all. Joseph points to God and not to himself. Now, his gifts can come to the fore. And Pharaoh says, what I need is a man of wisdom and maturity. And Joseph says, what you need is a man of wisdom and maturity. So they're saying the same thing. Joseph wants, I'm sure, for him to recognise Joseph. But he leaves the interpretation, the understanding with Pharaoh to work it out. Allows Joseph to make the unasked for suggestion, but leaves it with Pharaoh to conclude, actually the person he needs is right in front of him. It's Joseph. Joseph leaves it to God to raise him up. Not to himself, but to God. He's not agitating for position here. This is him relying on God to speak, to move, to act. Joseph has at last shown himself to be trustworthy. God, never mind Pharaoh, can trust him with authority, with power and with honour. That's the ring, the collar and the clothes. That's what they're all about. Authority, 
power and honour. So Joseph has gone from being rejected by his brothers to being given authority, power and honour to a people who were far away. There's a picture of Christ in all of this, if you want to find it. Jesus, we are told, learned obedience. Learning obedience doesn't mean you get it wrong. It means that you're given more and more responsibility to handle. Joseph, we can see, learned obedience. David, after being anointed, went back to the fields and learned obedience. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness learning that obedience to God's word. Paul went away for three years after getting saved and learned about obedience amongst many other things. Do you think it will be any different for any of us? That if God speaks, it's not automatic, it's not going to happen instantly, you might have to wait a long time. And when you're in your 20s and God speaks to you, you are agitating for it to happen. It might not happen to you in your 50s and 60s. You might have 40 years to wait. But once God's kingdom is first, all other things are added. And for Joseph, all other things are added after this. He gets married and has sons, almost certainly with the daughter of Potiphar, whom he'd worked for before. There is some debate as to whether it's the same one, but most people think that it is. So Joseph's journey is dream to pit. Pit to slavery, slavery to prison, prison to vizier. Positionally, he's raised up above everybody other than Pharaoh. His character is transformed from somebody that no one wants to one that everybody wants to be with. His promises, his words, his dreams are fulfilled, but not as he imagined not as he had hoped, but actually turned around, turned into, by God, into something amazing. Where Joseph stands out as a person, a man of God, a man of faith. He's someone for us to look to, to follow in his footsteps and understand. He kept his eyes fixed on God, even when he was in prison. We can learn from Joseph about endurance, patience and faith. And if you read Hebrews, it will tell you that those things lead to great outcomes. Patient, endurance and faith. And we will fulfil the promises of God. Shall we pray?